Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. This week at Redeemer Church, we have Pastor Ben Preston from New King Church delivering to us a message based in 2 Peter chapter 3. He takes this passage and compares the flood in Noah's time to the coming judgment in the future and how we should conduct ourselves with a reverent fear of God. He then ties all this together by looking at what Jesus has done to rescue us from the judgment that is surely coming. So here is Pastor Ben with this word from the Lord. Says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. And uh, kids, um, fifth kindergarten through fifth grade can be dismissed now to go to their, their class. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be here opening the word with you all. For those of you I don't yet know, my name is Ben. Uh, I'm a pastor at a church called New King down in South Burlington. And um, I'm married to Tiffany over here. We have five kids, uh, ages four to 15. Um, My son drove us here this morning from Colchester, so I've already uh, done a good bit of crying out to the Lord in prayer. 
and uh, feeling prepared. Um, no, I'm just kidding. He's a, he's a good driver. Um, I've only almost died once in the car with him so far last week on our way to church. Um, um, so I, uh, yeah, so we have five kids. I absolutely love being a dad. Um, it is the joy of my life. I love raising kids. We, uh, from the time that our kids were, were little bitty, um, we have tried to fill our home with uh, the Word of God, reading the Word, trying to teach the Word of God. Um, and, uh, and you know, when they're really little, and we still, with, with our four-year-old Millie, um, we, we start out with those children's Bibles. They're so great. I appreciate them so much. But it's always interesting to me that one of the stories that, um, that those, the, those Bibles will include is the story of the flood. Um, and, you know, they'll have a picture of the, the animals all, you know, sticking their heads out of windows on the ark, and they're all so happy, and there's a rainbow. And, um, and it kind of misses the point a little bit of the flood. Um, but that's, that's fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to pick on children's Bibles. I love them appreciate them very much. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is if that's the picture that we have in our minds when we think of the flood, um, then we are missing the point. Um, and, and, and what I want to talk about partly today is that the, the story of Noah and the ark and the flood isn't just a good children's, uh, children's Bible story. Um, it's much more than that. And Jesus, as well as the inspired authors of the New Testament, um, they saw it as having much more significance than we might think of when we think of it. And that's what hopefully you were seeing there in our passage in Second Peter chapter 3. Um, so that's what I want us to consider. I want us to think about um, what is the significance of the flood? What should that, uh, what should we think of? I'm going to be in several places today, but I'm going to be rooted in 2 Peter chapter 3. So you can go ahead and, and have, uh, have your Bibles open to, to 2 Peter 3. Um, I don't know if you normally, you probably normally have a lot of slides of Scripture. I, uh, I, didn't, get, I didn't get those sent in in time. So um, you'll just have to listen and uh, pay attention closer. Um, but uh, let me pray and, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, God, it is such a, a privilege and a joy to be gathered with your people this morning, to be singing praises to your name, and to open your holy word, and to consider the truths that it contains and what you want to say to us through your holy word this morning. Father, I pray that you would guard my mouth, that you would um, help me to say only that which is true and helpful. And Father, I pray for every person in this room or that hears this at some point, Lord, that you would uh, make soft and pliable hearts uh, that you would grant open ears, uh, that, that you'd be able to speak to us very specifically what we need to hear. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. 
Amen. So my sermon is going to be organized into three main parts. Um, The first part is looking at this connection between the flood and the coming judgment. Um, The second part is going to be looking at how knowing about and thinking about the coming judgment should teach us to conduct ourselves in a reverent fear of God. Um, and then and then thirdly, we're going to look at what Jesus has done to rescue us from the judgment that is surely coming on the world. That's the that's the basic outline. So let's let's jump in. The first part is that the flood is a harbinger to the final worldwide judgment that is coming upon the ungodly. So right here in Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse four, let me read just a few verses for you again. He, he, he says, um, scoffers, he's talking about scoffers, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. In other words, it's been a long time, right? When, why, why do you think he's coming back? For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the Heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, by water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And then he says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So you see that Peter directly connects the flood with the day of coming judgment uh, when Jesus returns. God once destroyed the earth with water. He will destroy the earth again, this time with fire. Um, And I believe Peter gets this connection directly from Jesus. Let's take a look at how Jesus applies the story of the flood to his return when when he will judge the earth. In Matthew 24, I'll just read you a couple verses there. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. So in Jesus' mind, he, he connects the flood to his return and judgment. Um, we modern Christians don't particularly like to think about judgment. It's not, a, not something we love to, to talk about or think about. Um, but it is all throughout the New Testament. Jesus speaks of the day of judgment um, throughout the Gospels. It is something that comes up again and again. The Apostle Paul mentions it almost every time he speaks about the gospel. Something I've been noticing recently um, is that he brings this up like it's part of his gospel. And and in the book of Acts, when you read his sermons, oftentimes um, the sermons that are in the book of Acts include something about this judgment that is to come. Um, Of course, it's all throughout Peter's letters as well. And then the book of Revelation deals extensively with the day of judgment. Um, it's difficult to find a page of the New Testament that does not at least mention the judgment that is to come. And that should tell us that 
we need to learn to consider the coming judgment more regularly if we don't. We don't. I don't want to assume that you don't. But many, many times, modern Christians, we don't. We don't think about it very regularly. Um, and, and we need to if we'll have a worldview that is shaped by the Scriptures. So I want to point out three things within this first section of, of connecting the flood with the judgment uh, that, that I think the flood can teach us about the coming judgment. There's more, but I want to point out three things. One is that Noah was warned 100 years before the judgment came upon the earth. 100 years. Now, uh, that's, I mean, in, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 100 years isn't that, that long. But for a person's experience, that is a long time to wait, right? 100 years is a long time to wait on the fulfillment of a promise. I mean, come on, one year is a long time to wait on the fulfillment of a promise, right? Um, so consider the fact that Noah lived the equivalent of an entire lifetime focused on one project, one promise that hadn't been fulfilled yet. A hundred years. Um, so I'm, I'm not old. Um, I'm 40. I'm, I'm getting to the point to where 10 years doesn't feel like super long. Um, but I can't imagine being focused on one thing for 10 years. I can't. I, can't, I honestly can't. I mean, when I think back to the, the things that have happened in my life in the last 10 years, like so much. And for 100 years... Noah lived his life shaped by the warning that he'd received from the Lord, and namely that judgment was coming and he must be ready for it. Beloved, we too have been warned ahead that a time of judgment is coming. The day when God pours out his wrath on the ungodly will come suddenly, even if now it seems as though it is a long way off. Speaking of this very thing, here's what Peter says. In chapter 3, again, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, he says, And do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter's saying, don't, don't think that, that he's acting slowly uh, for the reasons that you might think. His slowness is an act of mercy, so that those who have not yet come to repentance have more time. The Lord will fulfill his promise. He will return to judge the earth. But he waits patiently in hopes that more people will repent of their sins, lest they be swept away in his wrath. Um, so the second thing I want us to see in this connection between the flood and the coming judgment is that the judgment 
in Noah's day did come. And it was staggering in its universality. It, it swept them all away, Jesus said. Um, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, the wise and the simple, the religious and the irreligious, all were swept away in the flood. It was promised. It seemed like it might not ever come. I can, I can only imagine the mocking that Noah endured. I can only imagine the reputation that he had, not just in his hometown, but in surrounding nations. I mean, think about this. Somebody building a, a cruise ship, essentially, in their backyard, nowhere near the sea. Um, and, and, and this a project that's going on for 100 years. This, this would have, people would have gotten wind. I mean, there probably were uh, sayings, like, you're acting as crazy as old Noah. I mean, he, the things that he would have endured because of God's patience, and the whole time he built that ark, he was preaching. This was a sermon to the watching world. Judgment is coming, and you must repent. And they did not. Um, and then, then finally, I want us to see that this judgment took the ungodly by surprise. It should not have. Because of Noah, because of the sermon that his life preached, for a hundred years, but it did. It took them by surprise, um, but it did not take Noah by surprise because he walked with God. The final judgment will take the world by surprise, but it will not take those who walk with God by surprise. Uh, we may not know the day or the hour, but we do know he is coming like a thief in the night, and we are to wait for his return with eager longing. It won't take us by surprise. Um, here's what 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are not in darkness. It will not surprise you. When he returns, you will say, come, Lord. Thank you for coming, Lord. So that's the first part of the sermon. I wanted us to see this connection between the flood, uh, that worldwide judgment, and the coming judgment. Here's the second part that I want to look at, and that is that knowing that judgment is coming, we should conduct ourselves in reverent fear of the Lord. So this is uh, where I believe Peter goes with his thoughts on the flood and the coming judgment. Uh, verses 11 through 12 say this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You see that? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So since you know that this is coming, what kind of lives ought you to live? Peter's saying, remembering that the coming day of judgment, uh, remembering that it's coming, ought to impact how you actually live day to day. It ought to change the way you live your life every single day. Isn't that what it did for Noah? Now, 
If you will, put your finger here in 2 Peter 3, flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, two books back. Hebrews chapter 11 and, uh, and verse 7. So this is the, um, the hall of faith, and, and, and it gets to Noah, and here's what he says. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In reverent fear, he walked out a 100-year obedience. He was warned about events as yet unseen, and it, it produced in him reverent fear. Interestingly, even though Noah knew that he would be spared from the judgment coming upon the earth, knowing that God's just judgment was coming at some point in the future, taught him to conduct himself in reverent fear as he awaited that day. Now, don't miss the connection that I'm making here. In, in the same way, in the same way, even though we know that when Christ comes back and judges the earth, we, we who are in him will receive mercy. We are still to, when we think about that day, it is still to produce a reverent fear in us. It, this, is the way that, this is the way that Paul thinks. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11 says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. When Paul thinks about the judgment that is coming he doesn't think that he's going to be condemned or that Christians are going to be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But he knows he will stand before the righteous judge of all the earth. And when he thinks about that day, it produces a fear in him. A healthy, holy, reverent fear. In other words, belief in the gospel does not negate a healthy fear of God. Again, Peter is helpful to us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, he says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I mean, right here in the same few verses, Peter is talking about the redemption that was accomplished completely apart from works, the blood of Jesus shed for us to cleanse us. And he's also talking about living in the fear of God, conducting yourself in a holy and reverent fear of God throughout the time of our exile. The, the fear of the Lord, it's, a, it's, a, it's an often under, misunderstood topic. Um, I, I find that many Christians think that it's, it's an Old Covenant or Old Testament kind of an idea, and it's sort of 
gone away with the new covenant. Uh, but that's, that's, not, that's not what we see in the New Testament. Um, the fear of the Lord is it's the beginning of wisdom. Thank you. Yes, it's foundational for wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. All we have to do is look around at our culture and see what foolishness results when there is no fear of God. It's foundational for wisdom. It is foundational for holiness. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 16, 6 says, By the fear of the Lord one turns away from evil. It's foundational for holiness. Unless we think that it's only an Old Testament concept. 2 Corinthians 7 One says, since we have these promises, these gospel promises he's referring back to, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. How do we bring holiness to completion? In the fear of God. It's foundational for holiness. It's foundational for a relationship with him. Psalm 103, 13 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Luke 1.50 says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 15.14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Friendship with the Lord requires that we do what he tells us. Because he is Lord, right? He is master. He is king. And that's what, that's the way the relationships go with kings. So what do we do if we don't really have a reverent fear of God? What, what do you do if that's not, you, you recognize, like, I need to grow in this. Uh, here's what I would say. The fear of the Lord is cultivated through interactions with God within a love relationship with Him. I'm going to say that again. The fear of the Lord is cultivated through interactions with God within a love relationship with Him. Psalm 25, 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Think about this. When Abraham was still Abram, before he'd interacted with God, before he was considered a friend of God, while he was living in the land of Ur, did he fear God? No, he did not. So what changed? Because when he is on the top of the mount of the Lord, knife raised above his son, the son of promise, the angel stops him and the, and the Lord says what to him? Do not lay a hand on the boy for now I know that you Fear God. Now, what has happened between Abram and Ur and Abraham on the Mount of Promise? He's, he's built, he has built a relationship with the living God. 
right? He has, he has learned the fear of the Lord through interactions with God. He didn't read it simply by reading some verses about the fear of the Lord. It was cultivated through, an, through a real living experiential relationship. And the same will be true for us. We will learn the fear of the Lord through interactions with him in the context of a love relationship with him. Let me give you an illustration. So my little four-year-old Millie, if, if she were running full speed toward a busy road and I yelled in a certain tone, and I yelled her name to, and told her to stop, she would skid to a halt. Now, this only works if she fears me. But immediately, do you know what she would do? She would turn around and she would sprint back to me and want to be held tight. Her fear of me doesn't drive her away. It draws her to me. Why? Because she has learned to fear me through interactions with me in the context of a love relationship. And that's how we learn the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, finally, I want to consider that it, it helps us to finish well. This, this brings us back to Noah's example. It helps us to finish well. I believe had Noah not walked in a holy fear of God, that he would have never finished his 100-year obedience in building this ark. And so many professing Christians start out well, pursuing the Lord with zeal, fighting sin that the Lord died to pay for, but because they do not conduct themselves in the fear of the Lord, eventually they begin to tolerate sin. And that sin that is tolerated grows and grows and it eats away at your soul until eventually, if you do not repent, you will fall away from the living God. Hebrews 3 gets at this idea when it says, um, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It, it, it helps us to finish well. Or the way that Paul puts it in Philippians 2.12, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is, we must work out what God has worked in to us. And so... Friends, cultivate a fear of the Lord through a real and experiential relationship with God. And then let the fear of the Lord produce a hatred for any remaining sin in your life. Never tolerate it. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. It's a fountain of life to you and to everyone your life touches. And knowing that judgment is coming, conduct yourself in reverent fear before God. Now, having said all of that, we must finish by looking upon the only thing that can possibly save us from the judgment that is coming, and that is the blood of Christ. So look, if, look, if you're not there right now, look at Hebrews 11, again, verse 7. Hebrews 11, 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And this, is the last, this brings us to the last part of my sermon. 
Jesus, the true and better Noah, knowing of the coming judgment, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Here's what I mean. Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, tells us, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then later on, we read in that chapter in Genesis 6 that the Lord says, everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, Noah found favor with God. Noah was righteous. Noah walked with God. And as a result, the Lord established his covenant with him. But the Lord chooses to treat Noah's family members who enter into the ark with Noah as beneficiaries of the covenant as well. Who's the covenant with? It's with Noah. Were Noah's wife, sons, daughter-in-laws blameless in their generation? No. So how were they saved? They entered into the ark constructed by the man of God. This is a remarkable picture of the way Christ saves us from the judgment that is coming on the world. Jesus, the true and better Noah, is the only one who is truly righteous, the only one who is truly blameless before God. No one has ever walked with God on the earth the way Christ did. So how did Jesus construct an ark to save us from the coming judgment? In his perfect obedience to the Father, during his time on earth, he was making his sacrificial offering ready for the cross. Hebrews 10.5 puts it this way. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Knowing of the coming judgment, in reverent fear, Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, even unto death. In laying down his righteous life upon the altar of the cross, he was constructing an ark for the saving of his household. Following me? Christ's body, his very life, was the sacrifice that would pay for the sins of his people. Because of this sacrifice, God made an everlasting covenant with Christ. When we turn to Jesus in faith like Noah's family, the covenant that belongs to another becomes ours. His body, his blood are the only ark that can save us from the coming day of the Lord, but it is enough. So we've seen that the flood of Noah's day serves as a reminder to us that God's just punishment of the ungodly is coming again and soon. And that should lead us to conduct ourselves in reverent fear until that day comes. When that day comes, all who have yet to turn from their sins to Christ will be swept away in his wrath. And all who are hidden in Christ will be saved. I want to read to you a part of a hymn by Horatius Bonner from 1850. It says, come to the ark, come to the ark. To Jesus come away. The pestilence walks forth by night, an arrow flies by day. 
Come to the ark, the waters rise, the seas their billows rear. While darkness gathers o'er the skies, behold a refuge near. Come to the ark, all, all that weep beneath the sense of sin. Without, deep calleth unto deep, but all is peace within. Come to the ark, ere yet the flood your lingering steps oppose. Come, for the door which opened stood is now about to close. If you and I will be safe when the day of the Lord comes, run to the ark of Christ and enter by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you were obedient even unto death, that you obeyed the Father's will perfectly, that you have constructed a safe haven for us, and that all who believe in you, all who turn from our sins and turn to you in faith, enter into that safe place where no judgment can reach us, no condemnation, no wrath. Lord, help us, knowing this, to live lives of holiness and godliness and and to keep trusting you. And Lord, help us to hasten the day of your return. We cannot wait, Lord, until you unmake this world and make it new again and reign on this earth forever, and we with you. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.